Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. It was July of 2013 when I called the first outfitter. Fitz and I had laid out an eight-day, 100-mile paddle that would follow one of the thousands of canoe routes that spiderweb across the lakes and rivers of the pristine Boundary Waters wilderness. By that point in time, Fitz and I had planned countless extended wilderness trips, both together and on our own. In terms of logistics, technical skills, fitness required, and objective hazards, this trip could definitely qualify as the most mellow excursion we had ever tried to undertake together. Except for one thing. This was the first major backcountry trip we would attempt with a child. Teplin was well on his way to being a seasoned outdoors kid. We'd taken him car camping, crag hanging, and on a few two-day backpacking trips. He had started to walk and talk eight months ago. It seemed like a natural progression to take him on a longer wilderness trip. I mean, he was the oldest kid that I'd ever had. The outfitter picked up the phone, and we talked through the final details. When he asked for the names and ages of the people on the trip, he copied down my name and Fitz's. Then I got to Teplin Cajal, 21 months, and the line went silent. Well, he said, I can't write to you. My wife and I would just be worried sick about you all until you got back. Gut punch. I I understood where he was coming from. I too was worried about the trip and the what-ifs we might encounter. But I always felt that way before a big trip. Until that moment, these concerns didn't feel any different. Now, though, my mind reeled. Did I have the good sense of a mother? Was I about to put my child in danger? Could we do this? Should we do this? After weeks of calming the worries about the trip to the grandparents, I hadn't expected someone else's doubt to amplify my own so much. I called another outfitter. I gave our outdoor experiences pre- and post-child, see, we are competent parents, resume. Was there a tinge of desperation in my voice? Oh, sure. We'll rent you, Bill said. I'd wait till they're out of diapers, but suit yourself. My confidence returned. We'd plan and prepare. 
and we would just figure the rest out as it came along, just like any other trip. A few weeks later, we were in Eli, ready to embark. Before we headed off, Bill gave me one last piece of advice. Just keep him in a life jacket anytime he's out of the tent. Wet clothes, you can fix. Those eight days delivered on the wilderness experience. Long stretches of quiet paddling, river otters, jumping fish, mice skittering over our tent all night, hordes of mosquitoes. Solitude. We faced the hard decision of waking a sleeping toddler or getting hit by a thunderstorm. We avoided both outcomes by choosing to port it to the canoe with Teplin in it. I watched as Teplin drank in that new environment. His confidence grew as he hiked happily in his life vest, tried to paddle the canoe, succeeded at napping in the canoe, and sleepily called back to the loons. I learned how to handle the inevitable meltdowns of a toddler in a boat. The apples are both a snack and entertainment. The experience stuck with us. A few months after the trip, after pretending to call all of his grandparents, Teplin proceeded to call Minnesota, just to say, have a good day, Minnesota. Mentorship can come in many forms, from adventure partners, friends, instructors, even the stranger on the other end of the line. Sometimes we just need an extra bit of advice to get us on the right path. Sometimes it's a relationship that's built over decades. I hope I can be a mentor to my kids in the outdoors, that they will trust me to push them just a little bit and to be okay, or at least calmish, through the moments of fear and uncertainty. I say that I want to take Teplin and his brother Wiley outside to pass on a set of skills and an appreciation for wild places. But if I'm honest, I know that every time we get out as a family, I grow as much as they do. That's what's potent about the family adventure. We rely on each other in different ways than the day-to-day. We're partners as we struggle and persevere. Those trips demand creativity and adaptability. All of it builds a depth of trust and lifelong memories to keep talking about over the dinner table. Today, producer Cordelia Zars brings you Ethan and G-Pop, the story of a wild adventure, a passing of the torch, and the special bond that emerges and evades the constraints of words. I'm Becca Cajal. And you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. grandson of, what, 20 years almost? This is Bill Roebuck. Bill and Ethan have always shared a close bond. Too close to call him Grandpa, so the kids call him Good Pop instead. Here's Ethan. And he was like, I'm too young to be Grandpa Bill. I want to find something a little more light. So now it's been shortened to uh, G-Pop or <laughs> G-Pop. G-Pop taught Ethan and his brothers how to sugar maple, chop wood, and navigate through the mountains around Hanover, New Hampshire, where the family lived. Ethan learned to love the wild from his grandfather. And Ethan said he learned a lot of his outdoor skills from you in his childhood. All of them. (laughs) Bill had gone on many long expedition trips before, but Ethan had never lived out of a tent for more than a week. So when G-Pop proposed that they go on a tandem kayaking expedition along the Canadian coast the summer before Ethan's senior year of high school, Ethan was on board. I have a pretty young grandfather. 
but he was starting to get old and he kind of knew that he had time for maybe one last expedition and wanted to put together a big trip. Because, you know, both he's getting older, but also because I'm getting older too. These are skills he thinks are important and he wants to make sure I have too. And that is definitely a handing off of the baton, I suppose. I didn't know what I wanted to teach him. I wanted to give him an opportunity to learn. To me, what's really great about where we go is we're away. There's no constant stream of information coming in. All the information is what's rattling around in your head and what you can take from the land. The trip would last two months and cover about 500 miles along the eastern edge of James Bay. They pored over nautical maps and charts and prepared to measure out 60 days' worth of food. They had to find put-ins, takeouts, and get kayaks they could fold into a duffel bag for the return flight home. It took them the better part of a year to sort through all of the logistics. Good Pop's planning was meticulous. Think about the volume. The boat has a certain volume. We can only bring so much. If we bring less of one thing, we can bring more food. So in the fall of Ethan's junior year, Good Pop approached him with a question. He's like, Ethan, do you have any sense of how much toilet paper you're going to use over the course of two months? And I was like, uh, no. And I mean, I think, like, if asked, most people would have no idea how much toilet paper they use over the course of two months. His grandfather told him he better figure that out. And so what I had to do is I took a roll of the toilet paper that I would use over the summer, and I put it in my backpack. I had a little notebook. And I brought that roll of toilet paper with me everywhere for about a week. And I would have to count the squares of toilet paper that I used over the course of that week. As the plans progressed, a few other members of the family got inspired and decided they wanted to join the fun. Ethan's dad, Andrew, and his little brother, Reed, would join them for the first month of the trip. And his two uncles, Colin and Sawyer, would join them for the second. Ethan and Goodpop would paddle the full two months. On July 1st, the team headed out. They drove a thousand miles north of Hanover to James Bay, on the western edge of Quebec. The topography and ecosystem transitioned gradually from a mixed broadleaf deciduous forest to conifers, and then eventually to tundra. On July 3rd, they made it to the town of Chisassabi, where they planned to launch. We were going to try to put in then, but we woke up and the weather was awful. <laughs> the temperature hung near 32 degrees. Sleet and wind whipped around their faces the instant they stepped outside. And I think that was sort of the first moment when I realized that this trip was, one, real, and two, this is not going to be your classic summer vacation trip. Was your grandfather just totally unfazed? Unfazed. I think he expected it. I think he was like, oh, yep, of course, this happens up here. So they pushed their launch back to the following day to let the storm pass. They had a lot of gear in both cars, so they delayed running shuttles between their put-in and the airport where they would finish as well. Finally, they watched as a year's worth of planning culminated in one frenzied afternoon. I think everybody was pretty excited to get going and to uh, break away from land. When they finally pushed off, their kayaks were so heavy that they could only paddle a few miles per hour. When they got to their first campsite, they realized they had left a tent pole at the put-in, and Ethan and Good Pop had to go back to retrieve it. But they were doing it. The long-anticipated trip had begun. 
Hundreds of small islands punctuate the long, jagged coast of James Bay. The team planned to make their way up the coast, island hopping, until they reached Great Whale, which is about 180 miles north. This far up, only three or four hours of darkness fell over the land each day. Most of the islands didn't have trees, or if they did, they grew small and stunted. Recent glaciation makes the land so flat that from any high point they stood on, they could see forever. Ethan and his grandfather began in the setup they would stay in all summer. Good pop man the stern, and Ethan rode bow. He's sitting at the end of my toes, basically. Ethan and G-Pop would also share a tent all summer, which concerned Ethan because of some long-standing grandfather snoring issues. It's like quite terrifying. It sounds like a stampede of elephants. And I was like, you got to bring some nasal strips. You got to like do something about this. You should see a doctor or anything because like your boy Ethan's got to sleep because I got to get up every morning and paddle. I don't think I snored. He brought earplugs, but I don't think he used them. So it couldn't have been that bad. While Ethan paddled in the front, Good Pop took stock of their surroundings and constantly assessed the weather and the water to keep the team safe. It's really amazing to watch his body language. He sort of has this silent way of knowing what's going on with the weather and the water and how everyone's feeling and morale. It's quite impressive to watch him as he's studying the landscape or one of us or a map. You can see that he really knows what he's doing. Ethan became a student to his grandfather's knowledge that summer. One thing he sat me and my brother down to do was teach us how to like navigate with a map and compass while you're in a moving boat. And he was like, you know, you learn how to do this, you can do it forever. His second teacher became the weather, which quickly presented itself as a ruthless and relentless master. Yeah, so our first week was brutal. The wind blew a constant 30 miles per hour. In those conditions, paddling in the open ocean becomes not only difficult, but unsafe. If you get knocked out of the boat, the consequences could be severe. Plus, getting in and out of your boat in that kind of cold is just plain miserable. You put on neoprene booties and wool socks, and that might keep you warmer, but then when you're paddling, you're uncomfortable because you're like, have this wet wool and neoprene caked to your skin, and that doesn't feel good. Or you just like send it and do it in your tevas, and then your feet will just freeze. <laughs> Conditions didn't improve, and by July 8th, they realized they had slipped behind schedule. Unrelenting rain and wind had hampered their progress. The next day, they hardly made it any further north. They chopped through the water against pounding winds and rain. I kept imagining that the storm would break and the sky would turn blue, the wind would drop, and we would get in a 30-mile day tomorrow. They used their sat phone to call Good Pop's wife, Karen, and have her check the weather. She told them that a stationary low hung over James Bay and showed no signs of lifting. After many days in a row of miserable weather, Ethan and his team stared up the coast at the vast distance before them. They could count the number of meals they had left on two hands. I was just like, man, what had I done? What had I gotten into? And, you know, I'd sit there in my sleeping bag and rub my cheeks in the mouth, peach fuzz. And I'd just be like, what have I done?
Yep, we got some hard scores here. Reed had 21 points, my dad had 10. In spite of their dwindling food supplies, slow progress, and the awful weather, the team continued to push north, which meant a lot of tent time. They had to keep up morale, somehow. We started reading Game of Thrones to one another aloud. I gotta say, I've watched the show, I hadn't read the books before, and those books are explicit, pretty raunchy, and reading them with your six-year-old grandfather and then having your grandfather read wild battle scenes and crazy sex scenes in Game of Thrones is hilarious. It is so bizarre. Days passed by in a swirl of wind and rain, and the team continued to make slow progress. They had accounted for a margin of error and packed extra oatmeal, energy bars, and dehydrated dinners, but the pickings had grown slim. But they didn't talk about it. They just kept going. After nine days of paddling, they reached the halfway point of their first leg, with 90 miles left to paddle and only six days of food left. The stretch that awaited them promised more exposed coast and more wind than the last. They looked at each other, looked at the sky. The weather showed no sign of improving. You know, when New Englanders want to talk about their emotions, they end up just talking about the weather. We kind of knew things were going poorly. Instead of addressing that head on and being like, okay, like, what are you going to do? We just sort of be like, damn, wind, mm, not good. And we just sort of kick a rock and be like, you think this wind's going to let up? And my grandfather just grunt at me and go, mm, probably not. <laughs> the whole team was exhausted, emotionally drained, and physically banged up. Their faces burned from the wind, and their hands raw from paddling. Ethan, Andrew, Reed, and Good Pop finally decided to stop avoiding their emotions. I felt in over my head. My brother, my dad, and I all felt like we are in so deep. All of them piled into one tent and threw their sleeping bags around each other. It was mentally exhausting for me having boats full of relatives and I was clearly the one with the most experience, it worried me. And so I think we all looked at my grandfather at that moment to provide us some sort of guidance on what to do. It was really that last day that we sat down, all of us talked, counted the food, made a decision. Today, with the heaviest of hearts, we made the choice to turn back towards the Sassabee, giving up all hope of reaching Great Whale. We decided that heading south, though emotionally very tough, is the most prudent option we have. We loaded the boats and began the journey south. The buzzword, I suppose, is no longer north, but south. South is the direction we're heading, and we will need to cover a lot of ground relatively rapidly. We run out of food on July 21st, in six days. You know, I'd wanted to do this trip for a long time. They didn't talk too much about their choice on the way back, and the weather didn't get better. They got stuck in the tides and had to do a kilometer portage through the cold mud. One of Reed's shoes was sucked down into the goo and lost forever. But they nosed into Chesapeake, just as a thick fog dropped onto the bay and unloaded their boats. They had no food besides a little lemonade mix and some cream of wheat. 
They met their uncles, Colin and Sawyer, who brought them hot dogs at the takeout. I think my grandfather's like, I'd like a boiled hot dog. And I was like, Psh, you care, man? Like, I'm just going to eat. I haven't eaten in like a really long time and just ate it cold. It was perfect. For a while, Ethan struggled to come to terms with their decision to go back and to realize that they had made the right call. Even though the weather had made it irresponsible to go on, he took the decision personally. Especially, too, just because, you know, I think the way we define heroism is like pushing through adversity at all costs, especially in the outdoor industry. Ethan also felt the expectations of the person sitting five feet behind him in the boat. It was a failure from going this entire length of the arc. It was a failure from that point of view, particularly since I had thought about the trip for several years. You could just read in all of his body language how disappointed he was, and you could just see this sense of loss in him. I think the three of us felt like we were letting him down in a lot of ways. Despite his grandfather's expectations, or perhaps because of them, the decision to turn back challenged Ethan to redefine what heroism means to him. At the end of the day, who cares, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like 60 miles one way, 60 miles the other. It's a rather arbitrary goal. We have family and friends, and is it worth potentially risking our lives to paddle north? I don't really think so. I don't think that would have been heroic. I just think it would have been dumb. So I was like, maybe what we did, though, when we made the choice was devastating, was sort of heroic. At the end of part one of their trip, Reed and Andrew drove back to New Hampshire, and the team for part two, Ethan, Goodpop, Colin, and Sawyer, prepared to head out again. They flew into the small town of Great Whale, where they would put in. From there, they would try to paddle up to Umiak, 150 miles north. After some fresh tomatoes and a few good nights of sleep, Ethan and Goodpop felt better. The weather had begun to clear. As they pointed their boats north for the second time, things were looking up. On their first night out, they watched a pod of beluga whales fish and play together. Nearly 60 of them gathered there, and their splashes and whinnies kept Ethan and Goodpop awake at night. Ethan slipped out of the tent at 2 a.m. to look at them again. I watched these beluga whales, and I think what baffled me so much is like, a week before, there were 90-mile-an-hour winds, and it was lightning, thundering, and I thought we were going to run out of food. And then a week later, the water's totally calm, and I'm watching these beluga whales fish. And I was like, it is crazy how a place can go from wanting to kill you to showing you the most beautiful things. The second half of their paddle proved full of these mysterious moments of beauty. As they approached Richmond Gulf, an interior lake flanked by sheer cliffs on either side, they saw a single muskox wandering along the shoreline. Muskox don't typically range that far south, and seeing this one shocked Good Pop. Another day they saw a lone, young caribou, and then seals that would come up to their kayaks, rest their heads on a flipper, and look Ethan and his grandfather in the eye, as if to ask, why are you here? And as they paddled past a long, rocky outcropping off the coast, which the tide was quickly swallowing, they looked over and saw a porcupine. And we look at this porcupine that's a clinging dear life to this rock. And we all kind of look at each other and we just shrug and we're like, huh, 
Weird. And I, to this day, I wonder now what on earth happened to that little guy. Can porcupines swim? I don't know. The trip presented them with a whole string of these bizarre spectacles that just made them turn, frown, and wonder what on earth was going on. Like at their halfway point, Cape Louis Fourteenth, where Ethan and his grandfather could see massive structures jut into the sky from the land. As they got closer, they saw an abandoned army outpost from the Cold War era. The only thing that was attractive about the dome was there was a peregrine falcon nest in the uh, iron superstructure of the dome. Other than that, it was sort of sinister, particularly with this building that would have been the listening post with all the wires. There was something sort of supernatural or spooky about the whole thing. They paddled by scores of fishing villages. Ethan and his family would spend hours in the boat inventing elaborate stories about the town they saw on the horizon. I bet they're playing bingo tonight up at the Rogan River, or I bet they're eating waffles or eating beef jerky. It's probably popping up there. They probably have 4G. And then they'd paddle by the next day and wouldn't see a soul there. Something about that land and about the people there had a real end-of-the-earth feel. Ethan, his two uncles, and Good Pop had a mellow second half of their trip and finished their paddle up to Umiak without incident. The weather tamed out. Their rhythms became familiar, relaxed, and predictable. Everybody had a role and a place on the team to filter water, put in tent steaks, or cook dinner. And the stress from a few weeks earlier dissolved. They made good time up the coast. Ethan and Good Pop began to talk less and less to each other, and not because of any falling out. We kind of mind-melded. We lived through everything together, and so there was nothing really left to say because we experienced every moment as the same person in the same boat, in the same tent. Their last paddle ended in a beautiful set of waterfalls, and Ethan climbed out of his boat, took a breath, and said his goodbye to the north. I wanted nothing more to go home, but I was also sad. This stuff becomes your life, and it's so simple. And then you finish, and there's like this hangover where you're like, I've been doing this for so long, I don't know what to do anymore. I think there's this sense of real like emotional safety and security in having such a strong routine and purpose, too. My job was to get up every day. It was to work with this group of people that loved me and that I loved, and to just paddle north. And that was it. I had a purpose. I had goals. I had a reason for being there. There's this sense of deep loss because you realize you don't have a purpose anymore. I think I was beginning to think about that right as I finished the trip and was just sort of like, oh God, like how am I gonna go back to high school? How am I gonna like be a normal person again? And I didn't know. When I asked Good Pop about his own emotional experience on the trip, he sort of dodged. How did you feel like your relationship with Ethan evolved over this trip? Um, kind of a hard question. I, I, he did a heck of a job navigating, particularly on our retreat home. He was very steady in the boat and very thoughtful about what was going on. What do you feel like you learned from the trip or, or ways that you changed from the trip? Uh, at 68, you don't change much. 
uh, change. Um, but when I asked him what he thought the trip meant to Ethan and his brother, tears gathered in his eyes. I don't know. It'll certainly be a talking point. It'll certainly be a um, a bonding point between the two boys, particularly since it occurred under conditions that became stressful at one point. The separation from mainstream news media, separation from all your friends, it's just you and whatever you want to make of the surroundings. I think it makes for a lot of reflection and stuff. Even playing, I, I suspect if we were to play a game of hearts here, it would be different than a game of hearts in the tent. When he came home, Ethan struggled to reintegrate into the crazy wilderness of high school. His paddle gone, he felt empty, and the purpose he had on his trip became hard to find at home. I knew for two months why I was on this earth and what I was supposed to do with myself every day. And then I got back and I realized I don't have the answers to those questions anymore. He finished high school and started college. He slowly came to terms with the fact that he might not have those answers for some time to come. He devoted himself to his studies and to out and club trips at school. But I struggled to return because I lost this structure, this organization to my life. And I didn't quite know how to move through the world without it. But then, last Christmas, when he came home from college, three and a half years after the trip, he visited his grandfather. They sat together in his office and drank coffee. He just goes, some trip. And I'm like, yeah, that was wild. He goes, hmm, and kind of grunts. And we both, you know, just sort of like, we know. You know, we kind of, I think, have this awareness without even saying it, what it all meant to us. What made it so meaningful is that we lived through all of these things together um, and had each other's back. It's not just that you have this routine and rhythm, but it's that you're moving through what you're doing with someone else. It's not just that we had this single-minded focus, it's that we had this single-minded focus together. We lived through such a powerful thing together and we will always have that. Just like the power of that relationship. I think maybe that is the moral. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who recently released the documentary film Blue Heart. The Balkan Peninsula is home to the last wild rivers in Europe. However, 3,000 proposed hydropower dams and diversions threaten to destroy the culture and ecology of the region. If fierce local opposition and months-long 24-7 protests to protect drinking water fail, the last undammed watersheds on the continent will be corralled. Watch the film on iTunes or find a screening near you at blueheart.patagonia.com. Support also comes from Vossen Brewing, who would like to introduce you to the Vossen Vagabonds, outdoor athlete ambassadors who revel in competition and never miss an opportunity to give back to their sport. Learn more at vossenbrewing.com. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, the little company who believed they could build a better bike rack. With mountain bike season in full swing, check out their lineup at kuatracks.com. Whether it's a donation, t-shirt purchase, or a note of thanks, you, our listeners, truly keep the diaries thriving. 
To pledge your support, go to dirtbagdiaries.com and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed already. A huge thank you to Ethan and G-Pop for sharing their stories. Ethan is in his senior year at Bowdoin College and is currently leading a group of incoming freshmen around New Hampshire's White Mountains. Music today from Published Quest, Little Glass Men, Jason Tyler Burton, Amy Stolzenbach, Ken Christensen, Kai Engel, and Cloud9. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with direct permission from the artists. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. As always, you can find links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Becca Cajal, and me, Jen Alchel. Fitz will be back from his mountain biking sabbatical soon, and I'm sure he will have a tale to share with all of us. Until then, you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>